This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We understand that some of our opinions will not be shared with many people and hope you can still bear with us in order to hear amazing Wisconsin-based stories. We are not licensed therapists or able to give legal advice by any means. Our show notes will provide all of our source materials included for each episode. Now Now on on to to the the show. Welcome back to All the Sins of Wisconsin. I'm Fallon, and I am here with Mims. How are you? I am... You know, it's been a tough week. I'm not going to lie. We can talk about tough weeks, too. Good. I thought you were going to be like, oh, it's been great. (laughs) No, let's keep it real. It's been a tough week. Um, I got some shit going on, but this is um, always a safe place, so I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. I'm happy that you're here. It's always good when we can get away from our normal lives and jobs and talk about about sad stuff half the time but it's nice to talk to you it's good energy here like there is nothing that makes me not want to be here and it's so it's a good like release for me too so yeah definitely needed it's like a little my little sanctuary yeah <laughs> you made it really cozy so that's a, another bonus thanks yeah. and i think that we were talking about before we started the energy is really intense mm. for some people this week especially yes. sanitarius people we're which happy. we are yeah we both are yeah our birthdays are a day apart yeah that's really crazy <laughs> uh 13 and the 12th yep so we didn't know that until after we had already started this podcast. Yeah, it, there's a lot of like, you too? Me too. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. A lot of crazy coincidences. Yeah. There's going to be an eclipse tomorrow. Mm. And it's supposed to be clearing out all the old stuff. Oh, I, I would love a good clearing out. I need that yeah. right now. Yeah. Me too. I'm not feeling it though. Mm-hmm. So with an eclipse... Do we typically, are we able to like see that or is it kind of, woo? I just like messed up our whole day. <laughs> it happens. It's, uh, it's the week, it's the day. I'm so sorry. Um, let's see if we can see this eclipse. Okay, I'm not sure. Cause I'll make time for it. Cause I, I would love to see a good eclipse. When, where, and how to see it. Ooh. Let's see. Okay. Antarctica. We'll see it for two minutes. Oh, lucky bastards. Everything happens in Antarctica. That reminded me it's not true crime related, but okay. NASA found a parallel universe in Antarctica when they were doing studies in Antarctica. Is that facts? I read an article. Okay. I don't know if it's facts. <laughs> I want it to be. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Let's just wish it and it'll come true. Yeah. So I don't know if we're going to be able to see this one. It looks like it's just going to be an Antarctica. Oh. Okay. But it's a new moon and a solar eclipse on the same day, so it's going to be kind of interesting energy. I'm having a party, so. It's going to be everything that we need, hopefully. Yeah, I hope so. Mm -hmm. We're going to start, I feel like it's a starting fresh day with good, happy energy. Yes. Friends and parties and sequins. And sequins and rhinestones, (laughs) everything. And I'm going to be in pleather, so that's going to be a whole thing. 
Yeah, I'm gonna be head to toe sequins, and you're gonna be in plaid. We're gonna yes. be quite a combination. Ooh, yes, yes. I'm gonna be all black, and she's gonna be all hot pink. Hot so. pink. <laughs> my brand color. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> it's gonna be lovely. It is. What else do we got going on? <clears throat> Uh, so one thing I did want to talk about is that, uh, we listened to Strange Sessions episode where they did our, uh, little shout out and talked about us a little bit. Um, thank you for the compliment on our pictures. That was really nice of you. Um, we look like we're in love. We look like we're partners. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, it it was really natural. I I didn't feel awkward at all, so... And then another thing that you guys mentioned was um, you think that both of our names are fake. And we want you guys to guess whose uh, name is real and then whose is fake. So if you guys are able to guess, we will do a special shout out on our Instagram and our Facebook and just do a post saying how awesome you guys are. So if you can guess, we will do it. Yeah. We want to hear your guesses. I'm curious to what people think. Yeah. I was laughing so hard when I was listening. I mean, it's pretty... Our names are pr- not normal, so... I guess. <laughs> we are not normal. Right? <laughs> what do, do you got? Do you got anything? Um, yeah. A few episodes back, I had mentioned that there were some remains found by Loon Mountain in Lincoln, New Hampshire. And people were hoping that it was the remains of Maura Murray, but... It's not. So investigators believe the remains could be 300 years old. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's a 95% probability that they came from between 1774 and 1942 and 68% probability that they're from between 1718 and 1893. So chances are they're really, really old. And they appear to be from a woman or a small man and don't have any indications of trauma. So it's just... Like an old, yeah, somebody that was buried there for a long time. Okay, yeah, okay. Since like colonizer times, right? Sounds like okay, yeah. Well, not what we expected, but at least it wasn't something horribly tragic. I guess. Yeah, I don't know. Mixed emotions about it. Yeah, I feel bad for her family because they still don't have any answers. But I'm also glad it wasn't like a new murder victim. Oh, that's true too. Yeah, yeah. And then, did you see uh, the DA in the the Daryl Brooks case, the guy that ran the people over in Waukesha? The DA said that the assistant made an error in that bail decision when he got let out on a $1,000 bond. For the original? Yeah, for okay. the, he the was on bond one? at the time, yeah, for yeah. the first one, for the domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. Well, they call it domestic abuse. He ran his child's mother over from our Literally, that's uh, attempted murder. That's not domestic abuse. Yeah, I thought that was severely downplayed. Yeah. But, yeah. And they, the DA said that, well, this is according to the news article. The DA said the assistant is overworked and did not have time to look through the risk assessment nope. prior to the hearing. No. Nope. And then, then, you know, I got to be like, well, what's going on with your system that we don't have any time to look over things before we go to the hearings? Yes. So eventually you'd think people are going to learn that we can't keep going the way that we're going right now. No. Like the courts are overwhelmed. Yeah. Which is fair, but it's not, 
it's a job that needs to be done correctly. Right. So I think a big part of the problem is that they're wasting so much time on, like, drug convictions and other non-violent crimes. Mm -hmm. And then murderers, rapists, Mm -hmm. people like that are getting by, getting out. Right. I was talking to my boss, Chris, about legalizing a lot of, or he thinks to legalize all drugs. Mm -hmm. And he uh, actually mentioned how Spain has all of the drugs legalized and that their drug crime is like the lowest out of any place. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's just maybe legalizing drugs and then obviously that would get time for investigators and government officials to focus on actual murders or things that really, really matter. And, And not that drugs don't matter, but I think that there's way more focus on a weed charge or anything like that than... Yeah, and like these intricate setups that they make to catch people right. selling weed like that in Wisconsin. doesn't it's, matter. Like, get if anything, Wisconsin should get on the program of yes. just legalizing it already. Like, everybody yeah. else has. Like, I don't know yeah. why we're fighting it so Stop much. Stop raising our taxes. Legalize marijuana. And then, boom, you get extra revenue. Like, what doesn't yeah. it... It doesn't click... I don't understand why it's not clicking. I, I don't understand either. But, yeah, I was reading something about, I think, Portugal decriminalized all drugs. And if you get caught with more than a 10-day supply, you go in front of a board of people that's, like, a social worker, a psychologist, like, a treatment specialist. And then they work with the people to find out, like, why do you have this many drugs? What kind right. of interventions do you need? Because having an addiction is a mental health issue. It is, and it doesn't require um, incarceration. It it, incar- it, it oh my god, I can't <laughs> talk to me either. Um, it requires focus on rehabilitation, not yeah. not just put you in a cell, have you detox, and then put you back out into the street where it's going to happen again, and give you n- no help or guidance on how to conquer it yeah exactly it's just a vicious cycle the way that it goes right now like well let's charge this person and put them in jail and then they get back out and they go back on drugs because they still have the same issues that got them there to begin with very true very true so i always have to give a speech about something i love the speeches (laughs) if we could broadcast your speeches oh i I guess we are we are (laughs) Oh, I started this podcast with you so I could give everybody my opinion. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's why you're here, right? This is, um, you come for the opinions, you come for the banter. I hope. And the crime. <laughs> I haven't really heard why people have come to I love us. Either. But I would love to know why, like, you guys have picked us. So, yeah, if there's something know. you really love, let us know. Mm hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Ready? Are you ready? (laughs) That's all I've got. (laughs) Okay, sounds good. So, sinners, buckle up and hold on to your butts because my story is going to be long and an emotional roller coaster. This, I know. This is the story of Terry Gendusa Nikolai of Racine, Wisconsin. Okay. Are you familiar? I don't think so. Wow. I'm actually really surprised. 
I might be once you start talking. Okay. I'm um, not good with names. Yeah. And um, I'm pretty sure I have heard about this way back in the day. Um, I don't know how I came across it again, but I uh, I think a lot of people don't know about it, which is really crazy to me. Uh, my sources came from Wisconsin Circuit Court Access, CaseTechCIAspeakers.com, EqualRightsForWisconsin.com, MyRacingCounty.com, ForeverDreaming.org, and then Season 1, Episode 1 of Three Days to Live, and good old Webster's Dictionary. Awesome. Um... So let's get into it, shall we? Yes. So this is about Terry. She was an all-around normal American girl. She was a beautiful brown-eyed brunette with a smile you could not miss. I look at pictures of her and every picture is just her beaming and I, I love it. Oh, wow. She grew up in a suburb of Milwaukee she came from a loving family. Her parents were married for 52 years, so she saw what a long-term relationship looked like all of her life. She had uh, three siblings. She stated she enjoyed attending high school and had a lot of friends and was happy with her life. Like most teenagers, uh, and especially girls, uh, she was in a hurry to get married and settle down and have a family. I can't relate, but a lot of girls I mean, do that. I did it, but <laughs> Me it too. wasn't my plan. <laughs> no, it wasn't mine either. Like, I, I strictly said, I am not going to get married. I'm not going to have kids. I I want to be like George Clooney. Yeah. But he did get, end up getting married. Um, But at that time, he was not married, and he was like the bachelor, so. Right. Um, And then, right when I was 21 like fresh 21 i met my husband and i'm like okay i guess i'm gonna do this whole thing (laughs) (laughs) uh so back to terry uh she still wanted to go to college and she did end up going to college and then she ended up meeting a man named david larson they weren't close at first but years later he kind of surfaced again in the same friend group as terry they started to talk they started to connect more and she realized that david was a really hardworking guy. He had a nice home. He wanted a lot of things that Terry wanted uh, and was even very active in his church, which I guess is a selling point. I don't know. I don't relate to that either. Yeah, me either. Uh, what really sealed the deal uh, was the fact that she or he told her that he was ready to have a family. So on paper, he hit all the boxes on what the ideal partner looked like and seemed like to Terry. It was everything that Terry wanted in a man. The relationship flourished and seemed healthy and happy and loving. They looked like the perfect couple. In April of 1996, Terry and David got married and went on this beautiful honeymoon in Hawaii, which I'm really jealous because I haven't been to Hawaii yet. Me either. We should go. We should. Everything was a dream during the honeymoon, but... As most couples do, they ended up having an argument. They argued one night about what Terry was going to wear. And that, to me, is not okay. No. No man or nobody should be telling you what to wear, ever. No. The argument was about how he wanted her to wear one thing and she wanted to wear something else. She thought it was a stupid fight. And that most of the anger that she saw from David was not directed towards her. 
so the fight threw her off. This fight didn't feel right to her. It gave her the feeling of wanting to leave, hop on a plane, and get the fuck out of there. And I feel like that it must have been a really terrible fight because she's in her honeymoon in Hawaii, and then like all of a sudden she's like, I gotta go. I want to fly back to Wisconsin. Yeah. Oh, that's a really good point. Like, I'm in beautiful paradise, Hawaii, and I want to go back to to Racine. (laughs) Yeah, Racine. So (laughs) it must have been pretty bad. Um, So she felt trapped. She felt also guilty that and thought to herself, how could I possibly get married and just a couple weeks later want a divorce? It would make me look like a fool, she said. Aww. I wish people didn't feel like that. You can get a divorce whenever you want. I'm not advocating for divorce. But no. if you're in a bad situation, you shouldn't worry about what you it is. You shouldn't looks have like. to write it out. You shouldn't have to feel like you owe it to somebody to stick it through or owe it to anybody else or worry about what people think. Yeah, definitely not. Uh, the honeymoon and the honeymoon phase ended quickly and when they returned to their home in Waterford in Racine County, um, it wasn't the same. And it really makes me sick that people do this all the time. They put on like a facade on who they are. And then once they lock somebody in, boom, like the monster just comes out and it's entirely Mm -hmm. soul crushing and unfair. And it's like a terrible trick has been played. Right. And I think it's especially happens not to knock Christianity, but Mm -hmm. When you're like, oh, yeah, I'm really, the man's like, I'm really involved with the church. Knowing that the woman is really involved with the church and knowing that a woman really involved with the church is going to be more likely to try and stick it out. Right. Yeah. Because you think somebody that is uh, religious has this like good persona and I don't know, like the whole thing is messed up because you give off this one person and then all of a sudden you rope them into living a life with you and then it's completely different yeah so three long and turbulent years went by the couple ended up having two beautiful daughters um time did not make anything better and um his true colors came out more and more he was controlling, he was manipulative, and just flat-out obsessive. Woo! We had to take a quick uh, minute just to regroup ourselves because my uh, little guard just attacked me, so that's what the woo is for. Yeah, the pop filter. So uh, off. <laughs> for no reason. Okay, so he claimed that he was the man of the house with all of his narcissistic glory. He was just like, this is my house, and you are the wife and the woman walks behind the man is basically what his vibe was in the situation. Ew. He refused to let her work. He only let her have credit cards that were in his name. He had locks on all the doors and that he only had the only key to open them. Uh, he became enraged over little things like Terry throwing out freezer burnt food and saying that he, that she was wasting his money which I'm like, gross, do you want to eat that then? Yes. Then he would have yelled at her about that. Right. Or leaving things out of place or not cleaning in the way that he thought was the right way to clean. Uh, Terry feared David so much that when she broke an object made of glass, she threw it out in the neighbor's garbage bin instead of their own so that he wouldn't notice. Oh, wow. 
She made numerous attempts to leave, but David would either sway her or force her to reconcile. In an effort to keep her from leaving, he told her that kids from broken homes commit suicide. He Jesus. Sure, yeah, it's bad. He started verbally assaulting Terry in front of the girls, and one of them hid under the kitchen uh, table and screamed, stop it. This did not trigger David's sense of reality to kick back in or his fatherly instinct to comfort his daughter. He screamed at the little girl to shut up and continued on tormenting Terry. She knew that this was not the life she wanted for them and that she wouldn't want them to ever endure their father's temper and aggressive behaviors. And after her second daughter was about two months old, she said enough was enough and called her brother and left his punk ass. Good. She did the bravest thing she could and filed for divorce. She stated that their divorce was the longest one she has ever seen happen because of how much David fought at every step of the way. He was not going down without a fight. But neither was Terry. Terry was not going down without a fight and was determined to prove to the court that he was not fit to have a joint custodial relationship. And for those of you who are not familiar with what a joint custodial relationship is, it means that both parents would have equal parenting decision-making. Even though Terry fought hard for her children, the court still granted David a placement schedule, giving him unsupervised time with the kids multiple times a week. Their divorce was finalized in 2001, and the final court hearing, David stared Terry down and said that she would regret this. Terry knew that there was nothing she could do and just tried to make the best out of it. She moved on with her life and joined a professional choir in an effort to socialize. She met wonderful people and grew her circle. She even met a man named Nick. They grew a bond together and she even felt comfortable opening up about her ex-husband. She told him about how controlling he was and how she had to leave him. In October 2003... She found it in her heart to trust again and married Nick. And as many of you can imagine, David was not happy about the relationship. He stated to Terry that in the eyes of God, they were still married and that by her leaving and getting remarried was against God's will, which is just crazy. Yeah. Terry did not let her crazy act stop her from moving on and which was a great thing because she loved that Nick and her were such a good team and that they would make great parents. Uh, she had felt that she finally found somebody who was a good and positive male role model for her daughters. Terry was happy. She liked her job as a mortgage loan officer. She felt safe with Nick. She had two beautiful little girls and she was no longer under the oppressive and abusive thumb of David. So she was doing really good. Yeah. Sounds like she was doing excellent yeah. despite David. Despite David, yeah. Nick even put up with David's bullshit at drop-offs and pickups and his threatening communication to Terry. At one point, Nick, in an effort to support and offer safety to Terry, he went alone to pick up the girls, uh, but David could not stand that. He told Terry that she should not be sending Nick and that she was the only person to be at the exchanges. On one occasion, he shouted in front of the girls, get the hell off my property and take your whore with you. 
you said I was abusive. Well, now you're going to see how abusive I can be. There was no setup for the pickup or drop off. Um, so there was no rules. There was no locations. Um, so Terry and David basically had to arrange it themselves. I don't like that. No, me neither. So every attempt that Terry made to meet at a public place was shut down by David. David still wanted control and forced Terry to pick up the girls at their old marital home. David even took out all of this out on the girls and did some psychological messed up stuff to them. He would show the girls old mementos, pictures, and videos from when Taven and David were together and told them that the reason their parents were no longer together was because mommy didn't fulfill her promises. Oh my god. That guy was just so pathetic that he had to involve the kids in order to make himself feel better. Yeah. But David did not stop Nick and Terry on living their own life and enjoying their marriage. Friends and family were happy for them and truly believed that Nick was perfect for Terry. On January 30th, 2004, they went out and bought a pregnancy test. The test showed that Terry was pregnant. There was... They were so happy about the news, and for a while, even the little girls were starting to suspect that they were going to get a little brother or little sister, so they were pretty happy with their home life. Aw, that's good, after having a crazy home life, to have, like, a nice, happy example. Yeah, exactly. The morning of January 31st, 2004, so this is one day after, Terry was scheduled to pick up the girls from David's home at 10 a.m., They had plans to go shopping for a gift for a birthday party. The whole day was planned, and it was going to be a good day. Terry was also extra excited because they had not officially told the girls about the pregnancy and wanted to do so with Nick later on that day. Terry called David and stated, You know I'm going to be there at 10. Please do not be late. Please, please do not be late again. Just have the girls ready to go, okay? And Terry went alone to this drop-off as David had made it clear that it would not be tolerated if Nick also came. So when Nick offered to join, she refused so that it wouldn't be a scene on that day. She just wanted to go in, go out, and not have any altercations. Right. Terry also found comfort in the fact that the drive was only five minutes to his house. I would be extremely uncomfortable if my abusive and controlling ex-husband only lived five minutes away from me. Me too. I feel like that's not okay. No. She pulled up into the driveway and she noticed the girls were not ready, which made her irritated, as she should have been. Right. She decided to just walk back to the car and turned on the radio. She sat back in her car seat and waited and waited. She was waiting for about 10 minutes and finally she had enough. So she walked back up to the door and said, I really need to get going now. And she rang the doorbell a few times. David shouted from inside that the girls wanted to play a game of hide and seek and that she should come in and just find them already. Something felt wrong to Terry, but she wanted to get going, so she went in. It was strange because he never allowed her in since the day that she was allowed to get her belongings after the separation. Oh, wow. She walked into the home and kept calling for the girls and asking, where are you hi- Where are you hiding? Terry inched her way into the cluttered and unmanaged home, and then she felt a blow to her head. She then fell into darkness. When she came to, she found herself on her stomach with David on top of her. 
with a wooden black Louisville Slugger baseball bat. At that moment, Terry knew. She knew that even after all the years of abuse, all the years of trying to get away from him, leaving him, divorcing him, he's really going to the extremes. He's really hell-bent on killing her. David never got over it, and in fact, this particular pickup was a three-year divorce anniversary, which made it even more sinister. Wow. Did she realize that before she won? No. Okay. So, obviously, it meant nothing to her, but it meant a whole lot to David. All right. She then focused on what David was shouting at her. He shouted, shut up. I don't want the girls to hear you. So, the evil maniac was beating the mother of his children viciously over and over again while the girls were in the home and shushing her cries and yelps for help. Um... He then put duct tape on her mouth, taped her hands together, her black pants, pulled her black pants off, and also duct taped her legs together. He took off her shoes, her socks, her pants. He put her limp body in a Rubbermaid garbage bin, and then he started to fill the garbage bin up with snow. And I'm going to remind everybody that this is January in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. This particular January day was 17 degrees. So let's put aside the beating. The cold alone is a definite natural killer. Yeah. He dragged the garbage bin to the back of his green pickup truck, threw her in and gathered their children and drove across state lines. So he grabbed the kids, put them in there, and they didn't even know what was happening. I'm sure they knew they were supposed to be going home, though, and they had to see their mom's car in the driveway. Right. So they were probably scared, too. Yeah. He pulled into a self-storage facility in Illinois, close to where he worked at the airport. He dragged the garbage bin into the unheated storage unit and locked the door. And I really wondered why he stuffed the bin with snow. It almost seemed like he was trying to preserve her in a way, or maybe it was just like an extra way to torture her. I'm not quite sure. Yeah. He drove all the way back home and dropped the girls off at his girlfriend's house. He he committed to the perfect crime in his eyes. He got rid of that bitch, as he called her. He finally was rid of her and proceeded on with his day like nothing happened, and he made his way on to work. But there is a plot twist. What David didn't know was that Terry was a badass. She was in the back of the pickup truck, bound by tuck, oh my god, duct tape, beamed to a pulp, freezing in a Wisconsin winter with almost no clothing on her, and she managed to shimmy her cell phone to her hand and call the police. She gave David's address, her name, and David's name. She tried to create a sense of urgency, but the dispatcher had a hard time hearing her through the duct tape and all of the swelling. The dispatcher was actually kind of rude to her as well and thought it was a prank call and hung up on her. Oh my goodness. Terry couldn't keep on and kept falling in and out of consciousness. The dispatcher did send out a unit to investigate David's home and came across his stomach-turning scene. They walked in through mounds of paperwork, packed boxes, and items all over the place. So when I first started the story, it I started by saying that David's house was managed and was clean and she really thought that that was like a selling point of oh he has a really nice house and he's like this normal person and then all of a sudden like he is like a hoarder in his home Mm -hmm. they notice a large amount of blood on the carpet and across some of the appliances 
They noticed a black sweatsuit, socks, and shoes on the floor. They knew that Terry was in danger and that she was either dead or dying. They kept searching and came across a gun box, and when they opened it, there was no gun in it. Their worries only intensified. They also received a call from Nick, and he was worried about Terry and the girls since they were supposed to be back already. Investigators issued an Amber Alert and an APB, which means all points bulletin that alerts law enforcement officers that someone or something like a suspect or a vehicle is being actively looked for in connection of a crime, and that they might be armed and dangerous. The threat of David killing and disposing of Terry and the girls was on everybody's mind, and they raced against the clock. Since investigators did not have a search warrant and were acting off of a life-and-death circumstance, they couldn't collect or remove anything from the scene until they were issued a warrant. So they didn't have a search warrant at that point, but they were still looking to find some clues. Right. However, the search did produce the marriage decree of Terry and David, and an, and it listed three rental properties in Milwaukee. They contacted Milwaukee officials to be on the lookout for Terry's silver car and David's green Chevy pickup truck. A Milwaukee police officer went to one of the rental properties and found Terry's vehicle. He checked and nothing was in it, and he nervously checked the trunk but didn't find anything in it either. So the hunt was still on. Investigators thought maybe he went into work, so they called and stated that he was the his job stated that he was due for his shift shortly. Nearby, a police officers stopped him as a traffic stop as he was nearing his job location. He stepped out of the vehicle and was told that his daughter and ex-wife or his daughters and ex-wife were missing. He acted shocked and worried and offered any help he could give. They were going to let him go because he was so convincing, mm. but something caught one of the officer's eyes. He saw blood all over the back of the pickup truck. Then they took him in for questioning. They sat him down and he was calm as a cucumber. Nothing fazed him. Yeah. The investigators asked him where he was all day and what his, his day looked like. He said Terry was supposed to pick up the kids, never showed up, and that... He called everyone he knew to babysit, but nobody could, so he dropped them off at his girlfriend's home and went to work. Investigators knew that he was lying through his teeth and wanted to catch him in even more lies, so he they let him basically just rant off everything that they knew was not accurate. Right. And he had a girlfriend this whole time? Yes. Well, he was obsessed with yes. his way. Yeah. It'd be great to be her. <laughs> I wonder if she also saw this side of him. I'm, I don't, I can't imagine him not being like this, like, 24-7. That's a lot to hide, but I know yeah, people do it. So. Do. so they asked him, were you in the Milwaukee area this morning? And he replied, no, I was at home. And like I said, I was calling looking for a babysitter and I had the girls. The lead investigator, investigator revealed that they already knew that he, when... David was supposedly at home. He couldn't have been there because at 11.03, investigators were actually at his home. Right. And he was not there. Um, and he did reveal to David at that point that Terry was at the in the back of the truck and called police. And they traced his phone and it pinged in Milwaukee. So they basically... 
that broke his whole story right open mm-hmm. and were obviously really concerned about Terry. So they kept saying, where is Terry? We need to find Terry. She must right. be dead or dying right now. Please help us find the, the investigator was begging David to just give them something, something that they can go off of. Yeah. And David wouldn't budge. But when he was caught in the lie, he started rubbing on his jeans. And when the investigator looked, he saw dry blood on his jeans. David then flipped the story and admitted that Terry came to pick up the girls. But when she walked in unannounced and unwelcomed, he was crouching on the floor, packing the girls' bags when Terry tried to hit him with a hammer with her pants off. (laughs) What kind of story is that? Exactly. He then, out of self-defense, grabbed a nearby bat and hit him and hit her until he blacked out. He still doesn't know what happened and he doesn't know where she is, is what he claimed to investigators. Mm. At one point, he even yawned and asked to take a break. After that, investigators officially detained him and gave him inmate clothing along with taking his personal effects off of him. They sent his pants to forensic testing and even went through the tedious job of going through his enormous wallet. And when I say enormous, it's not because he had a lot of cash or anything else like that. It's because he kept every single receipt and business card in there. Eventually, after a few hours of calling businesses and cross-referencing receipts, they came across a storage unit facility business card that was located in Illinois. They called and spoke to the front desk employee, and that employee verified that David was, in fact, there the day before. The investigators then called local police, Illinois police officials, to let them know of the situation and to dispatch an officer that was in the area. The closest officer hurried to the storage unit and opened the door and found the black garbage bin inside. He, When he looked further in, he saw Terry's beaten and bruised body in the fetal position inside. The officer was horrified and thought he got there too late. Mm-hmm. But then Terry blinked, and it was clear that she was still hanging on to her life. After 26 brutal hours, Terry was rescued by EMTs. The EMTs carefully removed her from the bin and hurried her to the ER. He was, She was hanging on by a thread. Her eyes were so badly beaten, she couldn't even open. She could only open one of them fully. The other one was closed shut. Her head was three times the size of what it should be. Her legs had frostbite and turned black. And one of the uh, the nurses that was assisting her said that it looked like she had black socks on. Wow. Her rescuers and the medical professionals had little hope that she would pull through. But Terry was stronger and more determined and more pow- powerful than David. She fought for her children, she fought for her husband, she fought for her beautiful life, and she fought for herself. It was a miracle that this story did not end in murder, and it did not end with the death of Terry. It ends with a thriving survival story of Terry, Dendusa, Nikolai. Terry's doctors were sounded she made it through, and she recovered so well. Her husband, Nick, stated that he admires Terry and that she has incredible determination. However, this was still 
um, a tragedy at David's hands due to all the beatings and lack of medical attention that she needed right away. Terry lost her unborn child. Ultimately, he was charged in federal and state court with the state charging uh, charges resolving first. Afterwards, a bench trial in federal court continued. He was then convicted of kidnapping and interstate domestic violence and sentenced to life imprisonment. He tried to appeal the ruling, but the convictions were affirmed on appeal. Terry stated that police investigators had 102 pieces of physical evidence, yet they still wanted to do a plea and not make him go through trial. Terry felt alone and that the legal system sometimes made her feel like a victim all over again. Mm -hmm. She felt as if her voice didn't matter. Currently, he's trying to get relief under the 28 U.S.C. Statute 2255, which means that the sentence was imposed in violation of the Constitution of or law of the U.S. or that the prisoner is entitled relief in any way. And of course, the douchebag is listing 15 grounds for relief in his motion, but none of them have merit. He's claiming the denial of right of counsel of choice as he claims that the state forced him to accept representation, mm-hmm. inadequate factual basis of miscarriage as he claims there isn't and there is insufficient evidence that Terry was pregnant and that he couldn't have caused a miscarriage if she was. <laughs> and I just want to like slap the stupid out off of him. Yeah, he's. As you were telling, like, once you started telling the story and you said his name, I'm familiar with him. With him? With him, yes. Oh, okay. Let me finish up and then you can tell me. Okay. So another thing that he lists is illegal searches and seizures. He claims that the search failed to meet the requirements of the exigent circumstances expectation, which is what they were acting on for life and death situations. Double jeopardy, he claims that federal prosecutors violated the petite policy, which forbids dual federal and state prosecutions unless a compelling federal interest exists. He's also claiming extradition. He claims that he was unlawfully moved from Illinois to Wisconsin without the proper extradition procedure. He's claiming competence to stand trial. He claims that dissociative amnesia is what caused the abduction and that he was rendered uh, incompetent to to stand trial. Failure to investigate. He claims that he had that his counsel did not have invest. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry. That his counsel did not investigate or argue self-defense which (laughs) you have no self-defense guy. There's nothing that you could state. And lastly, he's arguing that he did not receive a speedy trial. David Larson was ordered a judgment amount, which basically was like $300,000 during the civil intentional tort case in Racine County due to be paid to Terry. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's currently serving his time at Wapong Correctional Institution. But even while in prison, David has shown continued animosity. Terry said David has told other inmates who were being released to look her up and kill her. Apparently, he never learned his lesson and will forever be a psycho. 
currently, Terry has dedicated her life to advocate for victims' rights. She stated her life now is great. She found she is good at advocacy work. She likes it so much she dedicated to run for a town supervisor. She now is in her second term. She is an advocate against domestic violence and openly speaks about um, speaks out about this type of abuse. She will talk about her experience and how to identify the warning signs of an abusive relationship and how to get help. She has even become a state chair for Marcy's Law for Wisconsin. For the past several years, the Racine County officials have worked with Terry to get more resources for domestic violence victims, improve the victim notification system, to keep victims aware of their attacker's location, and laws to better protect victim, victims of domestic violence. Terry is using this partnership with law enforcement as a model to help other advocates nationwide uh, to try to stem the rising tide of domestic violence. Terry has also been all over and even was featured on Oprah a and E network, ID channel, and CNN. She also goes and speaks to colleges as another way to advocate and be the be there for victims of this type of abuse. And I'm going to end my portion of this episode with the wise words of Terry. She states, "I'm letting people know they have a voice. The more people know there is support out there, the more who will come to help." I have literally met thousands of people. Don't ever feel hopeless in a hard situation. There is a better life out there. You have the power and ability to change your life. And that is the chilling but amazing survival story of Terry Jendusa Nikolai. Great job. Thank you. So did he file these appeals himself? I actually don't know that, but I feel like he did because I didn't see that there was a... a Attorney. Like an attorney involved they in it. They sound great, like crazy claims. Yeah. So I don't know if people know, but a lot of people, if you have been wrongly convicted or you just might imagine you have been wrongly convicted, mm-hmm. what inmates do is write lawyers. Like write all, to lawyers? Yeah, they write oh. letters to lawyers. Right. They don't have anything to do but write all day. Yeah. Yeah. So he's one of those that just like writes. All of the attorneys in Wisconsin oh. with his crazy ass fucking stories. Oh. And you can tell he still claims that he should not have been convicted. I don't remember if he was claiming self-defense or if he was claiming not to know about it at the time. Not to know of self-defense? Oh. Or like to not have been there at all or if he was oh. claiming self-defense. What I don't remember what his claim was. I do remember that he thought he should be able to represent himself. Oh. But then that he was incompetent. <laughs> Incompetency would have been my go-to if I was him because he is fucking loony. Yeah. Yeah. I, Super angry. Mm-hmm. He's like these ranting, uh, like, 10-page letters. Oh, That's the worst thing so you can do. So creepy. Yeah. Like, if you want a lawyer to listen to your case, you should probably not sound like a basket case mm-hmm. when you write the letter. Yeah. Like, be concise. Tell them the facts. And, like... Not, th- like... Fuck this bitch. <laughs> yeah, no. If you sound like a lunatic, they're not going to have much confidence in taking on your case. Nobody wants to deal with that. No, absolutely not. No. And I, I'm actually kind of shocked that there wasn't anything else, like, on his record about, like, maybe beating up, like, old girlfriends or, like, 
anything like that. Like I, a lot of people just don't report it. They just oh. try to get away from it because it's it turns into just a he said she said thing in court. Very true. You have to constantly see this person. Right. Right. So they might have just wanted to get away from him. But I do want to add, like, if people are in a situation with an ex that you don't feel safe doing exchanges and stuff, they have safe exchange. And all you need to do is tell the judge, like, I don't feel safe. Mm -hmm. Can we do safe exchange? And they'll let you do it. You don't have to have any communication with your ex at all if it's unsafe. Mm -hmm. There's apps that the judge can monitor to make sure the communications you do have are safe. I think I do know which apps you're talking about. I forget the name of it. It's like Our Family Wizard is one. Yes, that. Mm-hmm. And, like, I know in Appleton, they have safe exchange. It's right in front of the police department. Oh, right. And one parent will bring the kids in one door. And then after the kids are inside, the other parent will come in a different door. You're on opposite sides of the building, so oh, you're not in the same parking lot. I love that. You never see each other. It's stress-free for the kids. Exactly. Right. Because And the only- court documents then, too, if the people show up, they don't show up. Oh. How they act, if they're drinking. Like, wow. So... Any kind of bad situations, definitely ask for a safe exchange. You right. do not have to be. No. And you don't have to be the one either to pick him up. Like, he was making all these demands on her that exactly. he didn't have a right to make. No, no. And she didn't have anybody to tell her that. I and think, I hate that. Yeah, I think this could have been 100% preventable if she had correct resources that yeah. are obviously out there for these types of situations. Yeah, but it seems like nobody tells no. people. No, like there should be, and in most cases that there is a divorce, there is a court appointed person for the kids. Yeah. And that's when they, because I worked for an attorney, a GL, no, guardian at Linum. Mm-hmm. And they, she basically was the spokesperson for the kids and yeah. basically. She would do the My Family Wizard. She would always recommend doing the pickups at the police station. So yeah. I I don't know why that wasn't implemented in this case, but it definitely is. Yeah. Um, in a lot of you know these types of situations where it's, yeah. there is a, a fear of domestic violence, mm-hmm. just gotta ask. Yeah. If you ever feel uncomfortable, just ask for help. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I am going to talk about something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please do. <laughs> I'm going to talk about a cold case. But this time it was solved. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm not going to be with the mystery this time. You're always so mysterious. I love mysteries. Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> so this cold case was solved after 43 years. Wow, that's a whopper. Alright, so I'm going to talk about this murder that was solved after 43 years. So, let's start with when the murder happened. Okay. July 9th, 1976, David, and I hope I don't say his last name wrong, it looks like Shuldis and Ellen Matthews set up their campsite at a secluded spot in McClintock Park. That is up north in Marinette County, coastal UP. I know this. Do you? Yes. Okay. So the pair had been together for about three years, and they planned on marrying in September of 1976. 
David was 25 years old at the time, and he was working part-time in the circulation departments of the Green Bay Press-Gazette. And Ellen was 24 and was working at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay in the library. According to court documents, the pair had set up their campsite and then decided they wanted to go for a walk. And Ellen wanted to stop at the restroom before they headed out. And David was being chivalrous and decided to wait outside the door for her. And then two gunshots rang out. Reports would later indicate these shots were from a 30 caliber rifle. That is a big caliber to yeah. be just running around. Seriously. So one bullet lodged in the bathroom wall and the other struck and killed David Childis. Investigators believe that Ellen heard these shots and fled from the bathroom running into the woods and the killer would catch her about 200 yards away. She was then raped and shot twice in her chest. This is like Doesn't my worst, this is my worst nightmare because mm-hmm. Jake and I are like avid like backpackers and like campers like deep, deep in the woods because we don't like campsites. Yeah. So this is literally what I think about and this is why I sleep with like guns in with me because yeah. it's just like we go out for like relief and we go out for like peace and then but this is always like an underlying fear yeah it's like a scary movie exactly yeah so lance timper a retired marinette county deputy and forestry department employee was on his way to mcclintock park with his girlfriend on the day of the double homicide when he says he heard a single rifle shot a Timper says a park caretaker stopped him and mentioned that there was a person laying on the ground by the women's bathroom. He said there was blood dripping out of his nose and there was blood underneath him. His face was turning blue. His hands were turning blue. So there was an officer on scene almost immediately. Because mm-hmm. he it doesn't even sound like he had died yet. Right. It's terrible. At the time of the murder, they say everyone was stumped. There was no money stolen. Ellen's purse was still in the couple's vehicle, which was a purple gremlin. A How- purple gremlin? The vehicle was a purple... Yeah. What is that? I'm going to have to find a picture of you yeah. when we're done. It's an old car. And they said in the article I read, they had no idea what the motive for the crime was, but to me it's apparent he wanted to rape her. Yeah, I was going to say that he, he spotted her, her yeah. and eliminated the the guy in the way mm-hmm. and then chased her down and raped her. Mm-hmm. What else is there to... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. The police were stumped, though. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. So, in the 90s, DNA testing became available and investigators submitted the sample from Ellen to the FBI's National Database. Unfortunately, at that time, there was no hit. Mm. So then, in 2018... Investigators reached out to Parabon Nanolabs, a DNA technology company based in Virginia. And according to the company, their work with genealogy analysis has helped police identify 55 suspects in cold cases nationwide since May 2018. And that was only in like two years at the time the article had been written. They had solved 55 cold cases. Wow. They are amazing. Yeah. So, Paravon uploads DNA from crime scenes to GEDmatch, which is the free public genealogy database. 
GEDmatch has about 1.2 million profiles on there, all voluntarily submitted by people who've used consumer genealogy sites like Ancestry.com and 23andMe. So basically, if you get your DNA tested from one of those sites like Ancestry.com, they let you download your file so you can put it wherever you want it. Okay. So you can go on GEDmatch and upload the file. But recently, with some people's privacy concerns, Mm -hmm. now you have to opt in for law enforcement to be able to look at your profile on GEDmatch. So they went from having like these 1.2 million profiles that they can see down to like 20,000. So if you were on GEDmatch before and you haven't opted in, go on there and do that. Yeah. I mean, it won't hurt as long as you're not like a... As long as you're not a killer. Right. Or a rapist. a rapist or a terrible person. And if you are, then make I sure hope you they find in. you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Just ignore what we just said. You can opt in too. Everybody opt in. <laughs> <laughs> so many cases have been solved using this technology. The most famous one is probably the Golden State Killer case. Yes. So solving cases is where it requires someone... They find your DNA, then they find some distant relatives, like your eighth cousin, 13 times removed. Yeah, which random as hell. Yeah. And then the long part of the case is like reverse engineering this family tree to try to figure out how you could possibly be related to this person. What a job. Yeah. They used to have that show. Um, I think she was like the DNA detective. Mm-hmm. But they don't have it on TV anymore. I don't oh, know why. That's a She's shame. pretty amazing at her little magic family tree thing. <laughs> I like that magic family tree thing. Because <laughs> she was just like, oh, I just see a link. Like, where? Right. How? Right. I don't get it. Okay. And then in December of 2018, Parabon completed the family tree. So it actually only took them a few months. Mm-hmm. And that led them to... This family, how am I going to say their name? And Van E. Wenhoven family. He did really well. Thank you. They had identified the parents of the suspect through their creation of the family tree and found out that they have four male children. Okay. I don't know if they had other children, but they definitely had four. Yeah, they definitely had four boys. I'm still lost. (laughs) Okay. Now detectives needed DNA samples from all four of the boys. So two brothers were quickly ruled out when the detectives collected trash from a garbage can for one of them. They said they got like some socks and inhaler and something else. I was like, socks is so random. Yeah. And then another brother, they found a coffee cup that he disposed and they ruled out both of them. Okay. So now they got two brothers left. On March 6th, two sheriff deputies knocked on Raymond Vanny Winhoven's door in Lakewood. So I wanted to point out that this Lakewood where he was living is about 30 minutes from the park. Wow. The McClintock Park. Yeah. And they pretended they wanted him to fill out a brief survey on area policing. So they told him he needed to fill out the survey and he needed to put it in an envelope. What? And um, lick the envelope closed. Oh, wow. Like, yeah, you need to seal the envelope with your tongue. I would have been like, what Gross. the fuck? Yeah. No, no I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. I'm not licking any envelopes. No. 
I'm keeping yeah. my tongue to myself. Yeah. Definitely not putting it on police envelopes. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds suspicious. <laughs> but the detectives didn't end up needing to visit the fourth brother because eight days later, Raymond Lawrence Vanny Winhoven was in custody. And I was like, damn, that was a fast. Tur- DNA turnaround time. Seriously. Eight days? Like, how do they do that? That's some CSI shit. Nine to five. Wisconsin crime labs do not work like CSI. Oh, okay. No shade to Wisconsin crime labs, <laughs> but they're slow as fuck. <laughs> so I'm like, eight days? What did, wh- how did we do this? Seriously. Yeah, but they did. Okay. So on March 22nd, 2019, Vanny Winhoven. Somebody's going to be like, you said that wrong. Yeah, well, it's a really tough name. I'm looking at it right now, so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He appeared in court and, of course, said he was not guilty of the murders. Mm-hmm. Prosecutors and community members began investigating who Raymond Lawrence Vanny Winhoven was as a person because there's so many questions. Like, why would he do this? Was this a one-time thing? Right. Because Raymond was 82 at the time of his arrest. Oh, damn. Yeah. So he lived, like, this entire ass life just yeah. living with it. Yeah. Wow. Whole long life. And some neighbors characterized him as a quiet handyman with a gravelly voice. He had been married to Rita Lurquin until her death in 2008. The pair were married for 50 years. And together they had raised five children and had lived in Lakewood for over 20 years. Wow. Rita's brother Richard doesn't believe his brother-in-law is guilty and described him as a loving husband and father who liked to go fishing and liked to go for a week-long camping trip. Oh. Mm, right? I was like, hmm, was this a solo camping trip? Like, maybe we should look into some unsolved cases in this area? Yeah, because I feel like you can't, you, you can't just escalate to this out of the blue. No. No, you cannot. So, like in most cases, there was another side to Raymond. Mm-hmm. In 1957, Raymond, who was going by Lawrence at the time, attacked a 17-year-old girl while she was walking with her friends. He struck her on her back, face, and shoulder. And police also said he had attempted to attack a 16-year-old girl shortly before this. And the 17-year-old girl was, like, in a group with three friends, I believe. Wow. And he just attacked her. That's ballsy. And and he said his purpose was just to install instill fear in them. He's a psycho. Right? And at that time, he was 20 years old and married. But then there was something. He had one other criminal charge prior to the murder, and that was for failing to support his wife and newborn daughter. So at some point, when they first got married, they must have separated. Okay. And he wasn't providing support. Okay. Because it was like the 60s and things were different then. Right. They're like, um, no, you can't just leave. Like your wife doesn't have a job, dude. Right. Yeah. But then they must have gotten back together and lived happily ever after. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. You're right. Raymond stated he just wanted to try scaring girls. Ew, like, that should not give you pleasure. No, so disgusting. Yeah. And he would go on to be sentenced to six months in jail for attacking the 17-year-olds. It didn't seem like a long enough sentence to me. No! That's horrendous. How would you justify attacking an underage girl and 
Especially when you're just like, well, I just wanted to scare her. Right. Oh. I just abused her to scare her. Right. But I guess back then it was like, women didn't really have any rights. Yeah. Like, oh, it was just a girl. Right. It's like, oh, that's fine. You pro- she probably deserved it. We all need fear, I guess. Us women. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it turned into us. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which isn't a bad thing. I don't think it is either, but I'm sure there's some Christian men that would disagree. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there's a I lot of men. this podcast like, these bitches right. think they could do whatever they want. How dare they <laughs> have the rights? So, besides the neighbors that said, oh, Raymond was so kind, other neighbors reported he had a terrible temper when he drank. Mm. And that he had just recently quit drinking a few years ago due to health reasons. And others stated, you would not want to be anywhere near him while he was drinking. Okay. They didn't clarify, like, what he would do. Right. But one man that was listed was like, yeah, I would stay far away from him anytime he had anything to drink. Ugh. And then others just said the stereotypical things. Like, he was a normal, old, retired man that helped their neighbors out with things like lawnmower repairs. So, I guess he's nice now because he helps neighbors with their lawnmowers. <laughs> That's a big qualification for being a good person. Just help out and fix a lawnmower. Wave at people when they drive by you. Right. Like, when you're in your neighborhood and nobody will ever know you're a criminal. Right. Yeah. Because people be like, well, he waved at me three times. He couldn't have done this. Right. So let's go back to the court proceedings. Raymond was charged with two counts of first-degree murder and one count of first-degree sexual assault. And the court will go on to hold so many hearings. And then on December 23rd of 2019, Raymond's attorney filed a motion for a competency evaluation. And on March 26th of 2020, Raymond is found incompetent and he's ordered to inpatient treatment and ordered to be forced to take his medications. If he wouldn't take his medications, then they would force him to take them because apparently I can't see from the court records exactly what was causing his incompetency, but it seemed like something that could be changed with medication. Okay. So I don't know. Right. So... He is forced to stay there, and then on November 4th of 2020, so about seven months later, six, seven months later, he's found to be competent to stand trial. So they make people go to these inpatient places. Usually in Wisconsin, it's like Mendota. You go to Mendota, and then you like meet with psychiatrists and psychologists and people until they can make you be competent. Oh, okay. How does that work? They like teach you things. Oh. Like, what a judge is. (laughs) This is the judge. This is their role. Right. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That's basically what they do. And make you take your medications and give them any, like, mental health treatment that they need. Mm Mm-hmm. So they can go on to understand what's going on in court. So then they would proceed to trial. And during the trial, his defense team would argue that Raymond may have left his DNA on Ellen, but that does not prove he killed her. Uh, <laughs> that was my reaction <laughs> exactly. I'm like, what? I didn't. What? I couldn't even like get the words out of my mouth. Yeah, like, it, really? excuse me. This is this is what you went with, right? Yeah, they did. 
And they also wanted to be able to introduce other possible suspects and were not permitted to do so by the judge. The judge is like, you're not going to just come in here and make up a whole bunch of random stuff. So the defense also tried to attack the recollections of witnesses from the time, which is probably the only like solid thing that they said because 45 years is a long time to try to remember what was going on. And eyewitness testimony sucks when it's the next day, like we right. talked about before. Yeah, we were just talking about this the last episode and I can attest to my own recollection and I, I'm pretty like i don't have any sort of like impairments that would not allow me to remember things and i couldn't remember what the color of a truck was 10 minutes after i seen it so 40 years later is a a, yeah that's definitely a good defense yeah that's pretty much all they had though because i still don't understand oh well his dna was there but he didn't kill her then who did right were you there at the same time i mean I don't even understand how he managed to rape her before killing her when they heard the shots and were right there. Right. He had been right there the whole time. Mm-hmm. Which is super creepy, too. Yeah. So the defense team tried to appeal some of those issues prior to even going to trial. And one appeal was denied on July 20th, 21. And the other one was denied on July 26th, 2021. And then, as you can imagine, these attempted defenses were unsuccessful. On July 27th, 2021, a jury found him guilty of both murder charges. The sexual assault charge was dismissed after a motion hearing prior to trial because the statute of limitations is only six years, I believe, for sexual assault. Oh, that's so shitty. But for murder, it's... There is no statute of limitations for murder. There was, I just heard something in like a a southern state where they have like a statute or maybe they had, I don't think it's current anymore, but they had a statute of limitations for murder and it was like 14 years and it's like that isn't reasonable at all. So you could, or 14 or 15, so you could literally like try to be under the radar for 15 years and then be like, yep, I did it. And yeah. it'll, be, it'll be fine. That's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. I don't think there should be a statute of limitations on sexual assault charges I, I don't think so either. I think there should be on, like, petty crimes. Yeah. Drug crimes. But for stupid, violating like, another human crimes. being. Yeah. Anything violent, I don't think you should have a statute of limitations. Right. Or sexual. That's, yeah. You don't have the right to ever touch somebody that doesn't want to be touched. Right. So on August 26th of 2021, he was sentenced to life in prison for both charges. So he got two life sentences and he has requested transcripts and requested an appellate attorney. So it appears he is going to be appealing his conviction. Okay. I don't know why he's 84 or 5 now. <laughs> yeah, I would just take... The appeals process is so long and drawn out. And unless you have, like, a clear-cut issue, you can deal with the appellate courts for decades. He, like, maybe thinks that he is going to live to be, like, 150 years old and has the time, maybe? Or I don't know. Maybe. I really want to know what else he did, because I swear there's more. Yeah, absolutely. This guy is not just a one-and-done type of person. Yeah, I was looking on Reddit because I wanted to see if anybody had any, like, specific theories, but I didn't find anything. Oh, okay. And that's that's my unsolved... Well, not unsolved. My solved. Yeah. (laughs) Cold case. Wow. 
I actually um, started doing research for this one as well. And then, did you? Yeah, I did. And then I was like, I don't know what it was. I wasn't like connecting as much as I wanted to. And then I'm, I'm really happy that you did it because you did it very well and thank you delivered. So thank you. You did a great job. What if we do the wrong? Or what if we both try to do the same thing one day? <laughs> I wondered that myself. I'm like, we do not have a Steven. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't have a Steven. Um, <laughs> We sh- I would love to have a Steven. <laughs> One day. One day. Yeah. Um, and you'd have to have like a, a good name like Gary or something like that. Something we could just scream. Gary! <laughs> <laughs> scream across the room. <laughs> um, so thanks for listening, Centuries of Ours. Yes, thank you. Um, thanks for watching if you guys are watching us and our humble abode. Yes. Um, and we... Uh, would appreciate listener tales or your own experiences uh, sent to us in any mm-hmm. way that you want to uh, via email or DM. We would do that too. Yeah. Um, like, subscribe, and rate where you can. Yes. And definitely. We hope you keep listening. Yeah. Definitely keep listening. And we love you. <laughs> we do. Okay, I think right. we're that's a wrap. Yes, have a great week. Bye. Bye. Again, we are doing more. <laughs> All the Sins of Wisconsin was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Fallon and Mims. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, supporters, friends, and family that continually allow us to do what we love. If you love our show as much as we love you, please give us a glowing rating and review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see what we are up to and email us your sinner tales at all the sins of wi at gmail.com. Episodes of All the Sins of Wisconsin are available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't, don't forget, forget, we love you. Love you.